Hey, welcome to War With Yourself. Today we have a special guest, Darren Marble. Super pumped to interview him. If you don't follow this guy on Twitter, what are you doing? I mean, he provides so much value. Like, regardless if you're a startup, even if, you know, you're just looking to get into the entrepreneurial culture. Like, just seeing this guy, you know, he's very, you know, particular about his habits, his routines. And he puts a lot of value into, you know, building a businessman as well as a business plan. And, uh... Here's my guest, Darren. <laughs> What's up, Elijah? Thanks so much, man. It's great to be on your podcast. Yeah, no, for sure. And let's let's take it up from the top. Like, you know, let's let's go starting out because a lot of my audience are more Gen Z and younger entrepreneurs, and they might have not been exposed to you know what you're currently building right now. And I know you're building something huge with Go Public. So, how did this all start for you? So I'm a serial entrepreneur uh, based in Los Angeles, and um, about five years ago, my co-founder, Todd Goldberg, mm-hmm. took me to dinner at a steakhouse in Manhattan, New York, and he pitched me on the idea for the Going Public series. Mm-hmm. And he said, Darren, what if we were to launch a show where uh, the viewers could invest in featured startup deals while they watch? It's like Shark Tank, but the viewer can invest. And uh, my first reaction was to turn him down. I said, Todd, I've heard this idea a hundred times. It's a commonly pitched idea. Mm-hmm. And he was quick to call out, well, where is the show? You know, And of course it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And the reason it didn't exist, it was incredibly complicated to execute. A lot of the wrong people were attempting to put this show together. People on Wall Street that didn't really understand production or Hollywood and a lot of Hollywood guys that certainly didn't understand capital markets or securities laws. And I had a career operating at the center. I was helping companies raise tens of millions of dollars in capital for their businesses through um, online capital raising or equity crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. And we were doing that through the power of storytelling. So I had the right background for it. Todd had the vision. And uh, we decided at that dinner that we would pursue it and uh, execute. Uh, It took us over four years to put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. And now we've launched. And so season one is behind us. And really, this is a first-of-its-kind show. We're following the stories of founders who are raising capital for their companies. Mm-hmm. And for the first time ever, the viewers can participate. As a viewer, you can click to invest and buy shares in any featured company while you watch, whether you're watching from your phone, your tablet, your laptop, and you can literally buy $100 worth of stock in under a minute in a high-growth, privately-held company that has the potential mm-hmm. to go public to a NASDAQ or to the New York Stock Exchange. So this this, this uh, title of the series, Going Public, it's a play on words. The companies in this show aren't technically going public to NASDAQ, mm-hmm. but they are running public offerings where anyone globally can legally invest. And we are weeks away from announcing upgraded distribution with a tier one financial media company. So it's been a long journey, a lot of fun. And um, you know, I think we're, we're having fun with this now relative to what we were doing in the the early years and you know it sounds like you know right there man like i'm 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 already pumped up for that because like you know especially you know coming from the seat of you know being in a younger generation this is a great way to just see and analyze like how these deals go down first and foremost as well as get in on them you know and i'm very curious like what's your background as an investor you know, when you see these companies that come in, like, what do you typically look for in a deal? And what are the traits of the founders? It's a really good question. Um, there's a couple of things we're looking for. We're looking for companies that um, are, are high growth. So mm-hmm. 
the companies that we're signing for going public are not your shark tank businesses. We're not casting pre-product, pre-revenue companies. We're signing companies that are doing 10 million or $40 million in revenue. They've raised capital, likely from venture capitalists. And so they're technically well-funded businesses that are in a scale-up phase. We're looking for diverse and underrepresented founders. Um, the host of season one, Lauren Simmons, was the youngest ever female trader on the New York Stock Exchange, second wow. black female trader in their history. Um, the founders of Proven Skincare, which was a season one company, two Chinese female immigrant founders to the U.S., incredibly talented uh, young women. So we see this series as an opportunity to highlight diversity, um, to highlight different types of founders running different kinds of businesses. And we're, we're really proud to you know, be producing a show like that, especially in today's environment where I think the, the venture capital scene is, is ultra toxic right now. Maybe it's more toxic today, um, sadly, than it's ever been. And uh, who's raising all the money? Guys like Adam Newman. Um, what kind of companies are, are getting uh, VC backed by uh, A16Z, Launch House? Um, you know, this it's is just that. pathetic, right? This is mm -hmm. pathetic. And and then that's not even the real tragedy. The real tragedy is that 97% of venture dollars are not going to female founders. They're not going to black founders. They're not going to Latin founders. That needs to change. So we have a platform. We want to use this platform for good. And we want to tell the stories of founders that are effectively being blocked out of the system completely. And it's just a sad state of affairs in venture capital land. So we're looking to be a force for good and usher in a positive change here with this show. You know, and I respect that big time. You know, there's definitely like, you know, I feel like, you know, being a black man myself, you know, there is some, you know, underrepresentation, but I feel like on my end, I kind of even look at it as advantage because it kind of forced me, you know, to have my card straight. You know, while some people have the luxury to, you know, like, they could, you know, they, we, we've seen it happen all the time. Some founders come from a more privileged background and they have the luxury to, um, you know, make make more mistakes. And on my end, you know, sure. like you have to play the, your cards correctly and, you know, you got to be as straight as possible. And, uh, you know, I definitely think like there's definitely like mixed, mixed, um, you know, it's really just how you take it. And what I want to go over, like what really fascinates me is just this whole idea of like it's huge. You know, what you're building up, I'll give it to you. You know, it's huge. I think it has potential to, you know, blow out Shark Tank, right? And with ideas that big, usually people have a story within them that tells them not to do it. And how did you actually take an idea this big into reality? I'm very curious on that. You know, look, I, I've i been a founder for over a decade. And, um, you know, I'm a college dropout. I got mm -hmm. into a career in software sales. Uh, in my mid 20s and did that for 10 years and then started my first business in my early 30s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a founder of multiple businesses now, I've been to hell and back in my own companies. I've been a founder of a business that failed to raise capital. I've been a founder of a business that failed to generate revenue, failed to solve a real problem. I've made probably most, if not all, of the mistakes that a lot of first time founders do make because experience is the best teacher. It's really hard to learn these things in a book or you know, online in some article. And uh, I've been through a lot of shit. I've been through a lot of pain and suffering, um, mass amounts of rejection and frustration. And you know, because of that, I also know what it takes to win. 
And it takes grit. It takes perseverance. It takes resilience. And you have to be willing to wake up another day and fight all the time. And so I've arrived at a point in my career, I'm 42 now, mm-hmm. where I know that to really change the system and to change the game, as a founder, you have to play the long game. That means you have to have a long-term lens on what it's mm-hmm. going to take to build a business that um, really delivers positive impact to an industry mm-hmm. or a sector or even the world. And you know, you, you look at these big companies that are kind of name brand businesses now and all these founders, they've been at, they've dedicated their whole lives to it, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I have this insight, having been on the other side of the coin for a long time, um, failing, struggling, grinding, and just screwing up and making mistakes that I, I've learned not to repeat most of those mistakes. And I've learned that if you're just really gritty and persistent, you can break through. You can go from zero to one. You can create something from nothing. And I think more than anything, I've learned to be incredibly patient. Um, the things we've accomplished with this show, they literally took years. Mm-hmm. Signing a distribution deal with Entrepreneur, who was our distribution partner for season one, man, that was like a 16-month sales cycle. Wow! And that was after yeah. we got a verbal from the CEO on the first call. We pitched the CEO of Entrepreneur uh, the going public series. And he goes, mm-hmm. Oh my God, you guys, this is brilliant. I love it. Talk to my legal team. And then 16 months later, we signed that contract. So, you know, that was an exercise in patience, call after call, after call, this lawyer, that lawyer, they have a hundred questions. Is this legal? Mm-hmm. How does it work? Who picks the companies? What if these companies fail? They go bankrupt. Are we liable? Are we indemnified? So if you have patience as a founder, it's actually, um, you know, it's a virtue. It's a competitive mm-hmm. advantage. If you're willing to grind longer than the next person, the next team, you can do the extraordinary. And so that's part of my secret is just being willing to play the long game, having incredible patience, knowing that real change takes time and mm-hmm. being willing to invest that time for the desired outcome. You know, that's really interesting. I've never really thought of it like that. Usually it's kind of preach to you know go super fast but like now i kind of see what you're i i I definitely see the connect like you know just having that patience to you know because it's not going to happen overnight for sure and it's like not a you know it's not a one night sprint you know you have you see this all the time where companies you know as soon as they you know get funding or hit a certain milestone they just go running right and sometimes you know they don't have the infrastructure built out sometimes they don't have like the systems built out to maintain that speed and look uh, i mean it's it's and by the way, it's not that you shouldn't run, like you should go mm-hmm. as fast as you can, but you have to be realistic, right? Yeah. Some things you, you're just not going to run. It's not a hundred yard dash. Yeah. Maybe some things are like a sprint or mm-hmm. a quarter mile or, you know, a, a mile, like just relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. But I think the most strategic initiatives, they take time mm-hmm. and they, they take a lot of energy and a lot of patience, mm-hmm. you know, and, and look, I think, Investors want to see speed. Um, yeah. There's nothing wrong with being, you know, someone who executes and you've got technical teams and can do sprints and update your software. And, you know, that all those things matter. Mm-hmm. But I think the big breakthroughs take time. In fact, they take years. And yeah. that's been my experience. And so I'm just mm-hmm. one of those guys that's extremely stubborn. I'm willing to play that long game. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to win big because of it. And, you know, good luck to our competitors who think they can sprint and create a show like this in two months. It's never going to happen. No, for sure. 
You know, that's really interesting that you say that. Like, very curious, though, too. Like, you know, over the past couple years, you know, you've had a lot of startups in the past. You've had a lot of success as a founder. Like, what made, in your eyes, like, what made you a purple cow? You know, what made you stand out? What made you, you know, what, what separated you from all those other founders that have had startups in the past and that try to duplicate what you've done but haven't won at it? You know, look, I, I think it's just, it's grit. That's my favorite word in, um, you know, kind of the startup scene it is the ability to just keep pushing. Um, it's so hard, man. It's so hard to start mm -hmm. a business and find a business model that works and generate revenue and drive profit. I mean, it's near impossible. Yeah. Anybody that's attempted to start a business or has a successful business knows that to be true. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the other secret to my success, which, you know, you know, I talk about often is um, I've been sober for eight years. I quit drinking eight years ago. Mm -hmm. I say sobriety is a superpower. Um, sobriety is a competitive advantage for me as a founder of multiple businesses. Mm -hmm. It can be a competitive advantage for you um, mm -hmm. or for anyone listening. And the reason it's a competitive advantage is that it allows me to put 100% of my time, energy, and focus into my business. Um, and so there's no distraction. I don't mm -hmm. think about going to the wine shop and buying a bottle of cab or Pinot and pairing it with a steak. I don't get drunk on a Friday night and wake up hungover on a weekend. And, you know, I get pushback on this and that's okay. And people can have different ideas. Yeah. And you're talking to a guy that dropped out of college to grow weed and used to drink a lot. Okay. So it's not like I'm some teetotaler here. Oh. I've been there. I've done that. I've had my my fun days, party days, all of it. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes people push back on this stuff and they say, well, you know, it's so extreme, man. Like, what about moderation? Like, can't founders just be moderate? And, and listen, I get that. But here's why I disagree. I don't think you can moderate being a founder. I don't think you should moderate. I think you should be completely obsessive about winning. Yeah. And if you want to win... You've got to give 100% of your time and attention to your business. And I'm not saying, you know, forget your family and, you know, you don't have time with your kids. I'm not saying that. I think founders should be completely and totally obsessive about building their business. Mm -hmm. And even if you're drinking one or two times a week, those are the moments where you're off your game. You're losing some of that productivity. You're losing some of that energy. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a disadvantage, even if it's a small disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And you think about the nature of like running a business, the odds are against you. It's so yeah. hard to build a company and succeed. Why not give yourself that 1% advantage? You know why? Because sometimes that 1% is the breakthrough that you need. In fact, most of the time it is. Mm -hmm. Most of the time that 1% or half percent difference in how you show up is what drives you through the wall into the promised land into the next milestone, into the next investor, the next deal, the next hire. That's why I, I'm all in on, on sobriety. And, you know, eight years into it, man, I don't miss it. Right. So yeah. you can be in the habit of doing something. You can be in the habit of not doing something. Mm -hmm. When I get thirsty, I drink a sparkling water. Like I'll, when I'm out, I'll drink a Red Bull or like a Virgin Bloody Mary. I don't, I don't miss it at all. And I love my sobriety and I think it's an under, talked about strategy to run a business. Mm -hmm. And so I always challenge people, like if there's something not working in your business, quit drinking for 90 days. What do you have to lose? 
And if you're not willing to quit drinking for 90 days to try to improve your business, maybe you're not cut out for it. If you're not willing to make even that sacrifice, then I would ask that person, how serious are you? So people can judge me. They can say that's bullshit, but I push back. It's worked for me. It works for others. And I think it can work for a lot more people. Yeah. And I think the reason why people push back is because they create this story around it, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, like it's the norm to drink. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, Mark Cuban does it. Mark Cuban has four billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, he, he earned himself that flexibility. And, you know, it's really cool that you brought up the fact like just getting one percent better. I, I'm a huge fan of that. It's like when you're starting a business, you are very, 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 very unlikely to win. You know, most f small businesses alone fail. 80% of times in their, you know, first year. That's and right. so it's those competitive advantages that move you forward. Like I've been a huge fan of just the fact that like, you know, your li life should align with, you know, the business you want to build. Like if you want to be able to build, build a billion dollar business is a quote I learned. Uh, you want to build a billion dollar business, build a billion dollar man first, you know, to mirror that business. Cause you know, if you can match that level of frequency in your day-to-day -day life, that's going to show up in a business. You know, that's exactly right. I think you have the right perspective there. And like, you know, what's curious is, too, is like, what would you say? Because a lot of founders kind of take this the wrong way. They say here, oh, yeah, be obsessed with the business. I'm going to take away time for my health. I'm going to take away time for my kids. I'm going to take away time from, you know, things that actually you know, are going to move the needle for, you know, the important things, you know, your, your general life. What do you think about, you know, how how do you find that not that balance, but that cohesion? Look, I, it, it is tough. And uh -huh. I mean, I have a family, I've got a wife and kids and two kids are awesome. Um, it, it's not easy, right? I don't think there's a silver bullet here. I do think that as a founder, you have to be willing to go above and beyond a nine to five. You've got to be willing mm -hmm. to close a deal on a weekend, show up somewhere on a Sunday for a meeting Monday. You, you, you've got to go a little bit harder than the average person because mm -hmm. hey, you've got equity in this thing. And that equity could be worth a thousand times more than your salary, mm -hmm. right? In your best year. So that's worth something. The possibility of there of that value is worth the extra push, I think. Um, you know, that said, I, I do think balance is important. Nobody's working a hundred hour weeks always. Mm -hmm. I think people that only do their startup and don't have relationships with their family, friends, loved ones, they're missing something, right? And yeah. that can lead to destructive behaviors or energy. Um, but it is tough. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a hard time putting my phone away on the weekends, on the evenings, because I'm kind of always on. But that that generally works for me. So I, I think that, you know, balance is important, but it's not easily mm -hmm. achieved. And it, it is something that truthfully, you sacrifice as a founder um, to have a shot at building a big business or a successful company. Yeah. And I just feel like that equation looks different for everyone. Like, you know, like it, it's a lot different from somebody, you know, who doesn't have a family yet or somebody, you know, who has like, you know, who's in their 40s, mid 40s. They have a full family, you know, right. and they have kids. And I also think, though, too, it's like important to, you know, also like take some time and, you know, invest into yourself, like whether that'll be working out, like meditating, doing something that's going to, you know, put invest in you, because I think that. You know, as a founder, you know, you are a reflection of the business. No, the business is a reflection of you. Like of kind of what you're saying with like the sober being sober 
is like, you know, you have that competitive advantage, you have, you know, a clear mind, you have more clarity in your life that, you know, manifests itself in, you know, your business ventures, right? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I exercise like three times a week. I go to Equinox, it's down the street for me. Mm-hmm. I think it's super important, right? If if you are running your own company, you have to, you know, you have to make time for exercise and mental health. And the the stresses of running a company are are severe. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the easiest ways to manage that stress, um, especially if you're not drinking or you are sober, which I encourage, is to exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe for someone else, it's exercise and meditation. I'm not a huge meditation guy, truthfully, yeah. <laughs> but I do exercise a lot. Uh-huh. And I think that that's how you can kind of manage that stress and exercise it out. Um, yeah. You know, and then there's also just like a natural toughness, like you build thicker skin over time when you've been in the game longer right Mm -hmm. so like there's things happening in my business right now that would have scared the hell out of me five years ago Mm -hmm. kept me up at night prevented me from sleeping made me anxious giving me a panic attack Mm -hmm. they don't have that same effect anymore i just know how to respond better and usually the answer is you put one foot in front of the other and then one foot in front of the other and you just keep progressing and these small incremental improvements will, will drive you through to the other side if you're consistent. So I do think that at some point you're in the game long enough where you naturally have the ability to absorb that stress in um, a better manner and it impacts you less. It doesn't hurt mm-hmm. as much or scare you as much. Um but you know, you you do go through a lot of pain and suffering to build that that resilience, unfortunately. No, absolutely. You know, it's just part of the journey. Like if you want to build, you know, something big, you know, obviously, you know, you're gonna have, you know, your hurdles, your, you know, your your um your boulders you gotta move and ultimately, you know, that's what, you know, makes the journey so rewarding. That's right. You know, like I to personally like me, like I look forward to challenges because it's like, you know, I know that at the end of the challenge, I'm going to have a, either a, like a whole new different, you know, thought process on a certain, you know, part of the business or B I'm going to become, I'm going to have to become a whole new different version of me to, right. to push that border, yeah. you know? That's and I right. think it's really cool too, like that, you know, like just knowing, just seeing like a, you know, a senior entrepreneur, like just being able to, you know, like how you kind of think about like certain situations coming up, like the more senior, the more, you know, experience you have, like the more you're able to, you know, identify those certain situations. But I'm curious, like on that note, like what are some like mistakes that you made starting out that you wish that you you would have, you know, you would have learned or clapped some time in, you know? Man, there's too many to count. Um, I'll tell you a couple. I think Mm-hmm. The, the biggest mistake founders make um, is a really unfortunate mistake, but it's also the most common, which is a lot of first time founders build something that doesn't solve a real problem. Right. You could build mm-hmm. an app, you could build a marketplace, you could build a widget. There's real, no real need for it. You You will fail. And so the lesson learned is don't build something that doesn't solve a real problem. Mm-hmm. Do some kind of market testing. Do some kind of research. Talk to people. Mm-hmm. Pick up the phone. Meet with people. Talk to dozens, hundreds of people. Validate that they have this problem that you're solving for before you invest a year of your time into it, before you go out and raise money from 
you know, your customers before you raise money from anybody. Like that's yeah. it's a, it's a very big mistake. And I made this mistake in a business called film break. It was my first company. It was a social networking site for filmmakers. Mm-hmm. The perceived problem was that people in the film industry have a hard time connecting with each other. So let's build this platform that makes it easier to meet and then find work. And you know, the assumptions were just, we, we made bad assumptions. Well, everybody wants to be a filmmaker. Everybody wants to be an actor. So the market is huge. And of course, it's not true, right? It's actually a much smaller market than you'd imagine. And especially for people that are mm-hmm. serious about pursuing careers in acting or entertainment, very, very small at the end of the day. So we built a platform. We had 12,000 users and we generated precisely $0 from those 12,000 users. Mm-hmm. We also found out after the fact those 12,000 people were the most desperate because they were signing up for our platform in the first place. Therefore, they didn't have the money to pay us. So, you know, these are issues that compound um, potentially in a bad situation. Um, Other mistakes. This is also a common one. Idolizing investors, right? You Hmm. see somebody online, they have this persona, you, they look like a hero, um, and, and you you pitch them and they reject you. Extremely common outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can't even get a meeting with them. And, you know, even if they invested, the truth is it's it's a mistake to idolize investors. Mm-hmm. You, you know, don't don't do that to yourself. And the the other reason it's a mistake is because founders externalize their success. Mm-hmm. They think, oh, if I had this person on my cap table, it solves my problem. If mm-hmm. that person invests in my company, you know, I can win, I can go build, I can hire. And usually you have to do the opposite. You have to figure out how to build and hire and get that prototype out, first users, first sign of traction, first revenue mm-hmm. without anything. That's the secret, right? Like, and that's the hardest thing is most people externalize their success. They think they need someone else to give them something so they can go do what they're trying to do. And that's that's a very common reason for failure. It's a very bad place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so building something that doesn't solve a real problem, idolizing investors is a mistake. Um, you know, I think most founders tend to overestimate their own skills and own talents. They underestimate mm-hmm. how long things will take, how long it takes to build a prototype. They definitely underestimate how hard it is to acquire users. They you know, these are just very common mistakes. You've got to learn through trial and error. Um, what else, man? I mean, the list goes on and on. I, I also think it's important for founders to figure out like, how are they actually going to monetize the business? Mm-hmm. And you'd be surprised. Like there's so, a thousand founders out there right now building something and they have no idea how they're going to make money. They just don't. No, oh, that's crazy. You'd be like, how are you going to make money? Like, well, I don't know. You know, like they literally yeah. don't have an answer because they're just focused on building this app and they don't, they haven't thought about a business model. It's incredibly common mm-hmm. and they don't want to hear it. Like, well, I want to go for users. Okay. But then what, where's the business? How are you going to drive profit? Mm-hmm. Right. What is this? Are you doing a nonprofit? Like what's, how do you drive revenue? So a founder has to really think ahead and plan to generate revenue and they have to solve a problem and get paid for it and then do that over and over and over and scale. That's how you become a unit. That's how you build a billion dollar business. 
Absolutely. know, very mm-hmm. rare. I mean, there, there's anomalies. Well, this company, that company doesn't have revenue. Yeah, guess what? Those companies generally suck and they're on their way to zero, right? And maybe they yeah. got public this way, that way, but that's not something you want to try to do. You you want to try to generate revenue early on. So that's another message that I would leave to founders is really think about how you're going to monetize your business. What is your business model? What's your pricing strategy? Mm-hmm. And what does it cost for you to make your goods, your products and services? What's your margin? Mm-hmm. You know, and then how can you scale that? You have to have a business model. No, absolutely. And just like kind of like thinking like that too, as well as like, especially like when now when you go up to the investors, the, you know, venture capitalists, you're, you're, um, you know, it's a hundred, you know, you're a lot more you know, likely to get that outcome you're looking for. On top of that too, you have a, you know, you have actually have a fire lit to add feel to, you know, like, that's right. Cause you already have the systems in play. Now you can add more fire to the field to scale that out. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's other mistakes founders make, like their year one projection is a hundred million dollars or their year two projection is a hundred million dollars or their year three. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. That's a very quick way to scare off a savvy investor. Um, unless you've scaled a business to a hundred million in two years, don't forecast that. Mm-hmm. That's a red flag. It's a red flag. You haven't really thought through your model. You haven't put a pro forma together. Mm-hmm. You haven't really thought about the cost to build that kind of business or how long it will actually take you to achieve that kind of scale. Um, those are very common red flags. And, you know, people think, oh, investor wants to see all this money and they're, you know, big revenue forecast and it's going to be a billion dollars in three years. No, investors know that's not realistic. Um, they know that billion dollar businesses are not built overnight. They're incredibly uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those are a couple of tips. Yeah, no, for sure. Like the likelihood of that, you know, like getting to that billion dollar mark is very, you know, like, and especially over a three year period, you know, like very few companies have done that. And it's like, you know, definitely like, <laughs> it's like, what can you, <laughs> you know, what can you do about that? You know, like, it's like kind of like the way I kind of look at it as is like, you know, if you want a billion dollar business, like, you know, you got to already have like the systems in place. You got to have like even before you even, you know, have that conversation, you got to have a solid business plan, you know, solid place to monetize. Like is like then at that point, you're just writing numbers on a paper, you know? Yeah, that that's right. And I mean, look, I think especially in early stage deals in a seed deal or a pre-seed deal, mm-hmm. investors will they're not going to judge you based on your, your pro forma, right? They're going to write that off in, in a lot of ways. They know that it's an estimate. Every founder has a rosy estimate of how the business is going to perform. But if you have a stupid estimate, yeah, they will ding you. Like you'll get tagged for it. They'll be like, Oh, this person doesn't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They're giving me a BS estimate. They haven't really thought through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so important to go through that exercise. If you don't have finance, if you're not a finance expert, Go find someone who is mm-hmm. pay them a small fee for three hours to help you build a model, right? These are things entrepreneurs do. I have a problem. Well, I'm not the finance person. I'm not an Excel wizard. Okay. Find someone who is mm-hmm. find someone, pull them in, have them consult for you and put it together. You need it. Yeah, <clears throat> no, for sure. It's just like, like why do something you hate and take away valuable time from, you know, the business and trying to learn something new when, you know, you're obviously like not an expert at that and you could just outsource to somebody, you know, who loves that stuff, you know, right. who, 
lives and eats and breathes finance, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, I think like a lot of, I think definitely throughout the show, you know, we definitely see that, you know, you have a lot of experience in entrepreneurship and building big stuff. And I'm very curious, like if you were to go back into like being 18, 20, and you were given 10 years to build what you built where you are right now, what what would be your action items? What would you do? You know, look, for me personally, I would have quit drinking at a much younger age. And I know that some people think that's mm -hmm. ridiculous. And by the way, I thought that was ridiculous to uh, Elijah when, um, you know, I first quit drinking. I had a coach tell me, recommend to me to quit drinking for 90 days as a strategy to improve my business. So eight really? years ago, mm -hmm. I was offended when he told me that. I was like, why would you tell me that that's a good strategy? So I mm -hmm. understand why people think that quitting drinking is somehow strange business advice. But for me, having been sober for eight years and having seen my businesses start to take off in the second year of my sobriety, that was the unlock that mm -hmm. helped me achieve my success. And, and if I could have achieved that unlock earlier, I would have. It was honestly the last thing I thought I needed to build a successful company. Yeah. Right. Because again, you externalize. Uh -huh. Well, I need money. I need this co-founder. I need this technical person. I need a grant. I need a favor. I need to be in this accelerator. All these things you think you need, mm -hmm. but the greatest change comes from within. Yeah. And if you know, if I could go back to 18 and tell myself, hey, dude, quit this partying and drinking because you're gonna have an easier time building a company when you're sober and you're focused, I would have done it. Mm -hmm. um, but again, these things are hindsight's 2020. Um, what else? Uh, you know, finding the right co-founder also really important and incredibly hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I did a tweet on this yesterday. I was like, yes, you probably need a co-founder. That was a tweet. And I have, you know, four businesses and each one has one or more co-founders. God bless solo founders. I think it's very rare. I think it's yeah. incredibly hard. Um, you know, yes, we see stories of solo founders and we know some of these people are, you know, icons of entrepreneurship, but it's very uncommon. I think most people would benefit from having a co-founder mm -hmm. and then they need the right co-founder, right? Yeah. You don't want to double up on your skill. You're looking for someone that has a complementary skill set, fills a gap. Mm -hmm. If you're the salesperson, maybe you need the technical person. If you're the technical person, find a sales executive that can help sell and maybe be the face of the business. Mm -hmm. You know, it just depends on what you're doing. Um, but finding the right co-founder is really important. So I would have tried to help myself find a better, you know, earlier, the right co-founders for my earlier businesses. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm kind of thinking like from my audience perspective, like how would that translate? Like, you know, going to college, you know, when you're going to college networking with the right people, like if you know, you know, you're a talker, you're a sales guy, you have sales experience, you know, get in the hands, getting, getting into rooms with the engineers and the right people that match your skill sets. And, um, you know, definitely like just being able to, you know, working on yourself, going to work, going, fighting that battle with yourself, like fighting that war that everyone has, you know, going. Yeah. Yeah. Look, yeah. I mean, I think you, you need to find someone that you, you a get along with B you like, mm -hmm. but C you, you have to know and trust that person to some degree. Right. Mm -hmm. Like this whole idea of like founder dating or these mixers, you know, meet a founder and 
start a business, it's really risky. Yeah. So I do think that it's important for people to test relationships, mm-hmm. build a prototype, go to market together. You know, you, you don't need to go put your in, your legal documents together and your vesting schedules together the day you meet. Mm-hmm. Feel it out. See how you work together. Naturally, you're going to have disagreements with your co-founders. Mm-hmm. You're not always going to be aligned. You're not always going to have the same ideas. Mm-hmm. So is this somebody that you can communicate with openly? And when there is a conflict, you're able to resolve that conflict mm-hmm. um, through effective verbal communication. Um, is this somebody that can tolerate you? You know, and, and everyone has a little different energy. It's like a little bit like dating. Yeah. You don't get married after the first date. I hope not. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you really want to, you know, work with people a little bit and see how it goes before you make that kind of commitment to co-founding a business with somebody because it's a big decision. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. It's, you, you know, you're stuck with that person for, you know, five, six years. That's <laughs> you know, right. you definitely want to, you don't want to be with somebody you don't like. That's a fact. <laughs> and uh you know like what i was gonna ask you like a lot of founders struggle with this is like you know how do you find that co-founder like what what does that look like you know going to hackathons like very curious you know i think it's actually very possible right now um to find co-founders on platforms like twitter Mm -hmm. right i mean that's that's where we connected and i've met so many incredible people that the conversation originated on twitter or dms and then they become an investor or a VP or a business partner. And so I think building your brand online is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe Twitter's one platform. Yeah, maybe there's other platforms, TikTok, Instagram, uh, maybe even LinkedIn, as old school as it is. Yeah. I think it's important for people to have a strong personal brand and profile in the market to regularly be thinking and ideating and sharing content and their ideas so that the market can react and engage with you and engage with your ideas. And ultimately that's a great way to find business partners or even co-founders of a business, but it requires some commitment to brand building and content marketing, which Mm -hmm. by the way are really critical for business building. So yeah, I get it. There's some people are like, Oh my God, I don't want to be on Twitter every day. And, and that's okay. But there's opportunity there for those of you listening who lean into that and are willing to put that kind of time into these platforms. And you don't have to, you know, be a prolific content marketer, mm-hmm. do 10 tweets a day, but having that profile and brand presence and sharing your ideas and engaging with others who are sharing their ideas is a great way to connect and meet like-minded people. Yeah, no, it's up yeah, like you said, and you're meeting like like-minded people, you know, people of your tribe. You know, and that was, those are the type of people you want to build business with people that share similar beliefs as you that, um, you know, that are cut from a similar cloth and that, you know, you ultimately like align with. Right. Yeah. And look, like I hackathons, I know like if you're a technical person, great, but like I've never been to a hackathon in my whole life. And, <laughs> and, you know, and so, and I'm not a technical person. Yeah. I've met my technical co-founders in other ways mm-hmm. other than hackathon. So I think that's actually important, by the way, like if you're a technical person, the business people aren't necessarily at the hackathons, the sales executives, the, you know, the, the other kinds of, you know, co-founders may not be there. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you're going to find people like you. So you have to branch out and go outside of those events, I think, to find the complementary puzzle piece, right? If you just go to these hackathons, maybe you're going to meet only other people like yourself. So I'm, I'm a big you know brand marketer, content marketer. I think it's so easy to connect and meet new people online, especially Twitter. I think it's the most powerful business networking platform in the world. And, you know, I think it's like 23% of people in the U.S. use Twitter. So mm-hmm. there's a portion. It's a big, big chunk of the country. Mm-hmm. But there's so much action there. I think for anybody listening, if you're not on that platform, you should get on it. If you're on it, you should do more. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity there if you know how to use it. Definitely. I, I, I literally just hopped on like two months ago and it's probably been one of the best decisions of my life. Like nice, in terms man. of exactly. Yeah. Like in terms of exposure, you know, and just the value you get from Twitter, like if you're on the right side of Twitter, obviously, right. There's been some, there's some dark places for sure. Well, that's a fact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, if you're, you know, on the right side of Twitter, you know, there's definitely like so much opportunity out there. Like we connected through Twitter. I sent him a loom video, you know, I told him what I liked about his profile and, you know, what stood out to me. And, you know, he, you know, we, here we are today making a podcast together and, uh, you know, hopefully a lot more comes out of this as well, you know, on our end, you know, going to lunch. <laughs> Heck yeah, man. Yeah. Come by our office. We're in Beverly Hills. By the way, that, that approach is really solid. And I think it's a great approach for others to like, think about, Mm-hmm. it's easy to send generic direct messages. I'm guilty of this too. Like when you're raising capital, like, Hey, here's my business. Here's our traction. Here's what we've got. You want to see our deck? People get those 10 times a day, if not a hundred. And then, you know, you did this nice like 60 second loom video. It was like, Hey, here's why I'm reaching out. I like your profile. I like what you stand for your tweets about sobriety. Here's what I'm doing. And that's easy for, for me or anyone else to mm-hmm. watch in 60 seconds and say, all right, there's a personalization there that breaks through the noise. And so that's part of the strategy, right? When you're networking on these platforms, especially Twitter, is to be able to personalize your approach to people to make them know you've done a little homework. You don't have to read a book about them, but the fact that you do something about me is more than the average person. And I think that's really, it's a valuable strategy. Yeah, you know, especially like on your end too, like you have million, probably hundreds of thousands of pitches in your DMs, you know, like a bunch of, you know, people hitting you up to collaborate and stuff, you know, you got to definitely like, you know, be able to, especially if, you know, you want to connect with somebody, you know, who is where you want to go, you know, you definitely got to figure out a way to cut through the noise and, you know, just be able to like, get them in like, a, a get get a, you know, be that purple calendar DM box, you know. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But, um. Dude, I've learned so much from this, like just this podcast, you know, 45 minutes of just, you know, like just learning, learning, learning. Like I'm I'm super excited, not only for what I learned, but for my audience as well. You know, I think there's so much valuable lessons here. Like I'll say I'll highlight a couple things that I learned a lot is like one, you know, just being able to build out in public Two is just, you know, I think patience really hit me. You don't see a lot of founders talk about patience. You don't see a lot of people in general talk about that. And I think it's huge that you mentioned that. And then three, like, you know, how you, you know, use sobriety and being sober to, you know, dial in your focus and looking for those extra percentage points. I think that's, that's a right. very, very like powerful thing that anyone can get from my audience is just being able to, you know, think, how can I uh, two to three percent to, you know, my likelihood of achieving five or 10 percent, you know, like because that that compounds even one percent can yeah. be all the difference. 
Yeah. Even just 1%. Because you're um, in a- Yeah, that's right. Well, Elijah, thank you so much, man. It's a real pleasure to be on your podcast. And I hope that there's some value here for your listeners. Um, anybody listening, you can follow me on Twitter, <laughs> connect with me. I'm, I'm, I'm an open book and would love to be a resource to you if I can. And then let's hang, dude. Come come to our office in Beverly Hills in the next few weeks. Let's set up a time. Let's do let's it. Meet for lunch. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you got it. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> I'm down for it, man. All right, brother.